0: Well, good morning, church. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Uh, It's a great, great joy to... I just love Christmas. I really enjoy Christmas Eve with the three services and to see the different uh, artistic expressions that leave me in the dark because I'm not artistic, but I appreciate people that are that way. To see the generational thing going on and music, the next generation singing It's just fun. It's just Christmas is fun. So thanks for being here. I'm glad you're with us. Let's pray, okay? Lord, thank you for this day and for the privilege of singing that you are God and King, that you are Emmanuel, God, with us. Just so, so amazing. And I pray that by the power you bring Holy Spirit, you would not let us grow accustomed to saying... Emmanuel, God with us, or his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, or uh, you would give us warmth in our hearts as we contemplate the greatness of Jesus and, and change us, we pray, Lord, and I take the word of God and we thank you for the fact that you're God and you've spoken and make application to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the prolific writer Charles Dickens left us many memorable characters. Probably, arguably, the most memorable being this guy, Ebenezer Scrooge and A Christmas Carol. You know the story, of course, Scrooge. Here's the way Dickens describes him in his small play. He says he was a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint. And Ebenezer, who was covetous and uncaring, had a transformation from a greedy, selfish, cold-hearted man to what Dickens describes as a man of generosity, joy, and warmth because he was visited by three ghosts, Christmas past, present, and future. And so he repented in a way. This repentance did not occur spontaneously or without intervening forces, but he did Repent. The book of Joel in the Old Testament, as we think about the New Year, is written to a nation of Ebenezer Scrooges. They were cold-hearted. They were calculating. They had forgotten God. They had become idol worshipers. And because of that, God, in His intervening mercy, sent a plague of locusts that consumed the land. And then He sent a drought in such a way that chapter 1 says that the lambs and the beef cattle were languishing because they could not find water or grass. So it was a dour situation. But really the situation that God was addressing was their hearts. And this morning I want to say this. This is There's an inextricable link between the worship of God and human flourishing. Between repentance and usefulness. Between God being central and my having joy. There's a link. So just... The link, the worship of God, my usefulness, repentance, my happiness, that's what the book of Joel is all about. He's calling the people back to a standard of worship and repentance that would bring forth the blessing of God. And and he says, you've got to deal with your hearts. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, the call to repentance, where the Lord says this to his people in Judah after the Babylonian captivity. He says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So blow the trumpet in Zion and consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly, gather all the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, uh, gather the children, even the nursing infants, and let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber And between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach and a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So Joel says, you know, call everybody together, even nursing infants, even the honeymooners, call everybody together, consecrate a solemn assembly, weep Pray fast, rend your hearts, not your garments. Get serious about the things of God. He says, why in the world should the nations gloat over the covenant people of God and say to one another and to us, where's your God? Where's your God? And because there's a link between worship and God's blessings, this is what happens. Verse 18. Verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. What a beautiful word, satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 21, Fear not, O land. For the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green, and the trees bear its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion. There's a link between repentance and the blessing of God. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. There's a cause and effect here between repentance and God's blessing, between the worship of God and human flourishing, between God's glorification And our happiness. Or 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a well-known verse, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, sometimes you're going to be in a church and it's going to be 4th of July and that's going to be the sermon topic text exegetical background that is not a promise to America it's a promise to the church God's all about the church if my people us, God's covenant people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I'll hear from heaven, will forgive their sin will heal their land, there's a, a link we repent for God's glory and for our joy, listen to this For example, Numbers 32, verse 23, without going into all the background, there are two and a half tribes that were supposed to go across the Jordan and fight for their countrymen, and they go back across the Jordan and establish themselves, and, and so they're being encouraged to do that, and the Lord says, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, here's the quote, your sin will find you out. The Lord could have said, I will judge you, but He said, no, your sin will find you out. See, there is a Gravity, a spiritual gravity that pulls people down called sin. And so we need to be a repenting people. Spurgeon said it so well. He said, remember, if you are a child of God, you will never be happy in sin. You are spoiled for the world, for the flesh, and for the devil. In the day when you were born again or regenerated, there was put in you a vital principle which can never die. Spurgeon says, and he's right. He says, if you're truly a believer, you can never be comfortable or happy for long in your sin. People say to me all the time, "I've got a son or a daughter or a spouse or a friend or a parent, whatever," and and they they they. Professed faith in Christ when they were young or younger, and they've been away for year after year after year. They could care less about the things of God, and they're living in open sin, whatever. And I, I, what do you think? I said, I don't know their heart, but listen. If you're truly a believer, you will not be happy in your sin for very long because you have the Holy Spirit. And if you're rejoicing and you're happy in your sin, this we should pray for their salvation because. My happiness in the Lord is dependent upon honoring the name of the Lord. So repentance is turning back to the living Christ to tap into the ongoing joy that is ours. A guy named Ambrose lived in the 4th century said this, to, to repent means fundamentally to change from being insensitive to the voice of God in Scripture to being responsive to Him. So repentance is essential because listen, we deal with God. We deal with God, and God's worship and my joy and happiness are linked. If you read 20th century philosophy, there's going to be a large chapter committed to a man named Martin Heidegger. Martin Heidegger was a professor in Germany, uh, Freiburg, and uh, he was. Th- there was an ongoing debate because he he taught in Nazi schools. And didn't repudiate Nazism during the Second World War, and so his his friends said, "Well, he was just kind of trying to coexist to make things better. He really wasn't a Nazi at heart, and he didn't die until 1967." But last year. They released his personal journals journals called the Black Notebooks from 1931 to 1941, and it made the philosophical world go upside down because in those personal journals that were finally released, it became abundantly clear that Martin Heidegger not only approved of the Nazis, but he was a Nazi devotee, and he was anti-Semitic. And this caused people, the Martin Heidegger philosophical societies, to resign their positions and to leave that because they, they felt betrayed. But, but Martin Heidegger, this great philosopher, this great mind, at the age of 29 wrote his definitive book entitled Being and Time. And, and in that book he talks about the, we must embrace the ecstatic temporality, close quote. Ex- embrace the moment because there's nothing to really live for and nothing to really die for except what you believe in. And then in an interview in a nationwide magazine the year before he died, in 1966, this is what he said. He said, I think the only possibility of salvation left to us is to prepare readiness through thinking and poetry for the appearance of God or the absence of God during the decline, decline the latter years. And he said this, so that... We do not die meaningless deaths, but when we decline, we are to decline in the face of the absent God. And I read that I read that and I got I wanted to weep. Um, he said if there's a God, it's the absent God. God that cannot be defined. And so our life ultimately has no fixed purpose or true North Star. We just are children in an age of no tomorrow, so you just give yourself to thinking and poetry. And I step back and I think, you know, here we are, children of the living God, and we believe not only that we serve a God who is definable, who is Trinitarian, who invaded human history in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. From his he shall come to judge the living and the dead. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He's our shepherd, our king, our guard, and our guide. And not only that, but Revelation 14 says that our deeds will follow us in heaven. We're going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If we've done that, we see, see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that there is a, a judgment at the judgment seat of Christ regarding how we live our lives. And so our lives have dignity. We have the word. We have a place to stand. We don't talk about our decline in the face of an absent God, however you may define him. We talk about our joy and our peace and our hope and our responsibility in the face of a great, glorious Trinity. God. And so, so one reason this is essential, church, is that, is that we deal with God. Not the absent God, the personal God who watches over us, the glorious God who died on the cross for our sins. We deal with God. Therefore, repentance is a turning back to the Lord And tapping into the joy that is ours in Christ. Repentance is understanding that the worship of God and my joy or usefulness are linked together. So I want to be a repenting person. Because God's way is best, is good. So you think about repentance and you come to a verse that can be somewhat, you know, what does this mean? In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, this is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says this. For for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. So, So, godly grief is God centered. And it produces a repentance that leads to a salvation with no regrets because it's God centered. Whereas worldly grief is man-centered, is me-centered, and it produces despair. Explain, let me explain. So worldly grief that is me-centered is best typified in Scripture by Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, I think, thinking he would kick in a major revolution that would overthrow the Roman authorities. And it didn't happen. And so he goes back to the authorities. He tries to cash in his silver and get Jesus back. They said, no way. So because his repentance was about himself and not about God, he fell into despair and he committed suicide. Godly grief is about God. It's about offending the glorious God who is and going against his standards. And understand there's pardon in that because of who Jesus is. Godly grief is expressed by a hymn written by a woman named Julia Johnson that goes like this. It said, dark is the stain that I cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Question mark. How can I get rid of the dark stain that, 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 I, that I see? And she says, look, there is flowing a crimson tide whiter than snow you can be today. It's a great hymn. She, she says, there's a dark stain in my soul. You may not see it, but God does, and I know it's there. How in the world can I get rid of it? Question mark. She says, look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow, you can be today. Godly grief. It's about God. Worldly grief expressed in one of my favorite plays, Macbeth. Lady Macbeth energizes her husband to kill King Duncan in Scotland. So her husband would become king. But she cannot overcome the stigma and the horror that she and her husband committed regicide, or they murdered a king. And so she goes down this spiraling case into the dirt until you get to Act 5, Scene 2, where she's walking around like this, and her attendant pulls her physician aside behind the screen He says, here she comes. She does this all the time for 15, 20 minutes at a time. And the physician says, look, her eyes are focused ahead, but she sees nothing. It's like she's in a horrible dream and she rubs her hand and she says, out damn spot to out. She can't get the blood of King Duncan off of her hands. And then she says, hell is a murky place and I'm going there. See, worldly grief is about me and being caught and what it's doing to me. Godly grief is primarily about God and His standards. And I violated those. But there's hope in the cross. So, so, we must be a repenting people. Real repentance brings a change of behavior. Now, here's where Scrooge missed, missed the boat. Not to be critical of Dickens or Scrooge, but Scrooge's repentance was worldly. It didn't have any reference point in God. It was about, oh, I lived, haven't lived this way, and I haven't done this for my partner, I haven't done this for Bob Cratchit, and, and, and so forth and so on. And, and that's, that's good to a point. But you see, if you're a believer, your repentance involves the following. You, you see the, the danger, the filthiness, and the horrid nature of sin. And, see, and, this is Westminster Confession, upon apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, turn from their sin. So you see, see repentance is seeing where it's going and what it's done and what it's doing in my life. And, and, and simultaneously, that's eclipsed by the mercy and the beauty that's found in Christ. See, we're not a self-help reformation society. We're a gospel society. We see the horrid nature, but it's eclipsed by the beauty and the grandeur and the glory and the goodness of Jesus the forgiveness of sins by the cross. So that, that that's where that's where Scrooge missed it. That, that's why I carry around in me my little briefcase, a 25-page book just written by a, a Scottish guy who lived in the 1840s, and, and, and his name is Thomas Chalmers. And he was a mathematician and a philosopher and a theologian. He's a really bright guy, but he wrote a power, a book, a little book called the, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And it's pretty wordy, and you have to read it several times to get it, but it's, it's so good. And he says this. He says, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. I think, boy, I wish I, wish I could say that to every parent, every grandparent. You can't wipe out the attraction of the world permanently by telling people, this is bad stuff. He says, no, he says that there's got got to be a greater affection, a greater joy, a higher calling that that calls us to a place of deep worship. He says this, it is God apprehended by the believer as God in Christ who alone can dispose or get rid of other affections from their ascendancy. So you've got to see Jesus. I was praying this week. Operation World, of the country Zambia, thirteen point two million. The HIV rate is fifteen to twenty percent, which is a national nightmare. And I thought, how would you teach the people of Zambia? Well, you 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 teach the importance of safe sex. So for yeah, absolutely, but ultimately, what do you teach? You teach the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of Christ who says, let not the marriage bed be defiled. The beauty and the glory of Jehovah God, who says with thunderous joy, thou shalt not commit adultery. And see, this affection must eclipse or supplant the affection of the world. He He says, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and to hear his beseeching voice as it speaks goodwill to men and entreats the return of all who will to a full pardon and gracious acceptance, it is then that a love greater than the love of the world will expel other loves from our bosom. And I say to myself, I say, I need that. I need to see that repentance is a turning back to joy and repentance and my usefulness are linked. Repentance and my joy are linked. Repentance and my happiness are linked. That's why Joel is pleading here. I think of Isaac Watts, who wrote the hymn called, I'm, We're Marching on to Zion, and he says, This the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. And I said, Amen. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And Isaac Watts says, that's David in Psalm 84. He says, The, the hill of Zion yields. God's chosen place for us, Zion. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. I believe that. The greatest life in the world is to be able to stand before the living God who is glorious in his Trinitarian splendor and to hear these words, your sins are forgiven. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You're mine. That's so good. That's so sweet. Or another hymn. Some of us will know this one very well. I am resolved no longer to linger charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. So church, repentance is all about seeing the heinous nature of sin, like Scrooge, but or and apprehending the sweetness and the mercy and the goodness that's found in Christ. That's what Joel is pleading for the people here, and then he gets to the section where he talks about re- the restoration that God brings in chapter two. And he says this: He says, "I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil." And I, I skipped a few verses, but verse, and every time I I'm to read this, I kind of chuckle. Uh, verse, verse twenty says, "I will remove the northerner far from you." I just said, amen. And I will drive him into parched and desolate lands. And really, parched and desolate in Hebrew is translated New Jersey. <laughs> just kidding. But anyway, you, you, you can have fun with that if you want to, but we won't, we won't do that. We're so glad to have all these Ohio license plates among us, and even Pennsylvania. Anyway. And this is what happens when God, when God blesses. Just, just listen to this. This is just, this, this is so sweet and glorious. Verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication and has poured down for you abundant rain. Rejoice and be glad. God is going to meet your needs. And then he talks about the provision of verse 24. He says, it says, the threshing floor shall be full of grain and the vats shall overflow with, overflow with wine and oil. God says, I'll provide for you. And then this verse, verse 25, is just one of those beautiful verses in the Bible. The first part. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. God is all about restoring broken people. I don't know where you are and you walk with the Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but let me tell you if you've done something really dumb, which we've all done, some more than others, God restores the years that the locusts have eaten. Another way to translate it, I will make it right. I will bring flourishing and wholeness to your life. That's the God we serve. The God who wants us to be gloriously happy and full of hope. It's just good. Then he says, verse 26. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied, which means to be sated, to be full. You'll be satisfied. And you'll praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And I I think about as the new year approaches, it's just, just sit. And I know some people have some difficult times this year, but just think about how wondrously the Lord has dealt with us. Just list it out. Oh God, you've been good, you've been good, you've been glorious, you've been kind, you've been good. And my people shall never again be put to shame because you run to the Lord, you run to the cross. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there's none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame because you run to the Lord. You see, I want this human flourishing. I want this restoration. I want this joy. I want this hope. I want this no shame as the gospel is essential in my life and your life. I want, I want to change. And I'm going to be preaching the next few weeks on, on how people change under the hand of God. And I don't want to be this year like I was last year. I want to change. Come Holy Spirit. And so as you, as you think about Coming year. You know, where, where's God want to work in your life? Let's, let's just say it out loud in the coming year, we're all going to lose weight and get in shape. Okay? Let's just get that off the board. All right. That's universal. Okay. If you if you say to somebody that worships here and claims to be a believer, says, Well, where do you want to go this year? I want to get in shape and lose weight. Say if that's the depth of your thoughts, shame on you. Because everybody lives at that zip code. Everybody. And there's nothing wrong with that, but good grief. So, 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 as, I, as I, th- I think about this, I, I thought about a little paradigm in my mind. I thought about the book of 1 Timothy, written by Paul to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. So the goal of this command is love, pure heart clear conscience, sincere faith. So I I stepped back and said, "Well, Lord, teach us to have pure hearts. The heart in the Bible is the seat of the emotions. That's why Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart with all diligence because from your heart flow the springs of life. Proverbs 2, my son, give me your heart. Please give me your heart. And so I stepped back and said, well, I want to have a pure heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A guy named Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will the one thing, to honor God with all of your life. I mean, I want that. So, so i say just a couple of applications. How do you develop a pure heart? Well, you guard your eyes. You guard your affections. Let me just speak to men for one second. I lament pornography. I glory in the information highway. It is a glory to be able to read things from all over the world. But pornography is a, is a canker and it's a disease. And, and so, let me just say, men, get a filter. Get covenant eyes. Have an accountability partner. And you may say, well, I don't really have a struggle with that. Well, then just do it for the rest of us who do. Do it for your sons and your grandsons. Because it objectifies women, it belittles people, it gives men incredibly unrealistic, stupid expectations. It's so prolific. Do you, do you know this? Playboy magazine has gone out of business, guys. They've gone out of business. It's just so accessible. So I, I plead with you, if you're a parent, get filters on your those computers. Say, well, my kids really smart; they can work around it. Well, just get filters anyway. But I, so, uh, for women, I'm not a woman. But I thought, well, how do you think the purity of heart with a woman? And, and I, you know, you start reading websites, and, and you're going to read articles as the New Year approaches. It's all about the body, all about looking good. And so article today says, she's 70 and she's still hot. I thought, no, she's not. <laughs> Let's just be honest. She's really not. And really, really... How stupid can we get to lay that on women? I never read an article about a man 75 and still buff. They don't, we don't lay that on men, but we lay that on women and our girls, and it's from the pit of hell. Sometimes I just want to go out, stand on the freeway with Psalm 3130. It says, charm is deceitful, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. So I, I say to women... Old and young. Read First Peter 3, 3 and 4 about the Lord reverencing a woman who worships him. Don't get caught up in all this silliness. So a pure heart. Whatever weighs you down. Now, some of us a pure heart as we buy these magazines and we're strategizing on how we're going to buy the Biltmore mansion. It's not going to happen. And so it just breeds discontent, pure heart, because a pure heart in worship leads to happiness. A pure heart in reverence in God leads to joy, and I want that. Second part was a a, a clear conscience. A clear conscience, by definition, is the inner awareness of the moral quality of your own decisions. Clear conscience inner awareness of the moral quality of your own decisions. I'm married to someone who's wonderful. And occasionally she says, let me help you with this. Your self-awareness is not what it should be in this area. And she's right. That's what a spouse does at times. They help you with your inner awareness of what needs to be said to you. And I need to realize that my decisions make a difference. So, so if I'm going to have a good decision-making, I need to fill my mind with the Word of God and the truth of God and the hope of God and the wonder of God and the beauty of Jesus. I just need to. I've got to think his thoughts after him. When it comes to relationships, if there's a broken relationship, I should seek to mend it, to have a clear conscience toward God. And if I can't mend it, I need to go to extremes to not speak ill of people, to be gracious and caring, to let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as, as it were with salt. Colossians 4, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Proverbs 11, verse 10, that's the way I need to live. Clear conscience. I need to leave that way relationally. Listen, marriage part this is very easy. If you're married, you're getting ready to go into the new year, just say to your spouse, how can I make our marriage better? It's pretty easy. And don't say, well, you know, I know you say I shouldn't be so demonstrative, but I'm Irish. Irish people are demonstrative. Your wife says, oh, you always should talk to me more. Well, I'm German. We don't say much. We just work hard. Oh, it's sin. It's sin. We have an objective standard here, whether you're Irish or German or Scandinavian or from New Jersey. It's right here. (laughs) And then thirdly is sincere faith. Sincere faith. Which means that who you are in the interior is what you are in the exterior. You ruin your heart, not your garment. What you see is who they are. Pure heart, clear conscience, sincere faith. C.S. Lewis, in closing, said this in a book I read every January. It's called Mere Christianity. Lewis said this, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on fuel, And would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about the Christian faith. God cannot give us a happiness... And a peace apart from himself, because it is not there. God made us, and the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Glorification, enjoyment are linked, and it is a glorious thing. Because the Father says, "Enter into my joy by the cross." So blessed be His name. Let's stand and close in prayer. Okay. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the, the book of Joel. Thank you for this book that tells us that repentance and human flourishing are linked. And I pray that would be true in our homes, our marriages, our friendships, our parenting, our relationships uh, with co-workers, neighbors, family, and friends, that we would have uh, a deep concern about men and women who do not know you as Savior and Lord, that you would not let us be in 2016 what we were in 2015, that you would change us from glory to glory by the power of the Christ through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit as you, Holy Spirit, take the Word of God and apply it to us. So blessed be your name. Oh, God, make us people that repent because we want to taste your goodness. Repent because we see the beauty of the cross. Blessed be your name.